Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Monday, March 12th, 2012, and our special guest today is Mimi Ito. Mimi, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's good to be here. It's really delightful to have you here. You are a prolific person. It was really fun to get to know you a little bit through your work. The Future of Education is a part of my Web 2.0 Labs project, web20labs.com trying to create places of conversation around education. We appreciate the support from Blackboard Collaborate, who provide this terrific room. Coming up at the QNSD shows this week, if you're going to Q, you're going to have some fun. What uh, fifth anniversary of what we've been calling EduBloggerCon, now called Social EdCon, the all-day unconference, for the first time at Q, not the day before, but actually the first day of the conference. Uh, lots more fun there at Bloggers Cafe, live stream sessions. Go to QUnplugged.com. And then if you're going to ISTE, of course, the flagship event, also being changed from EduBloggerCon to Social EdCon, but the all-day Saturday unconference on education. Uh, ISTE Unplugged now has all of the details. Classroom 2.0 as well is celebrating its fifth anniversary, and as part of that, we have two really fun projects. The Ed Incubator Program, PBS NewsHour, is our first project, building a teacher council for their programs, um, as well as Classroom 2.0, the book. And a, kind of a fun announcement today, uh, we're extending the deadline on the book proposals. Uh, they were to be due this Thursday. We've had a terrific group of chapters come in, really great. But we have a new event that we're announcing. It's the Social Learning Summit. This is going to be an all-day Saturday virtual event, free, uh, sponsored by Discovery Education. And we're announcing this tonight. There will be a blog post on it later. But because of the process of getting ready for the Social Learning Summit, many of you are going to feel overwhelmed. So we are extending the deadline for the book to April 21st. Um, and again, uh, this is a highly inclusive worldwide conference. Uh, Saturday, April 21st, the Social Learning Summit. More details coming out tonight on my blog and through Classroom 2.0. Also, uh, two conferences that we're waiting for dates on. I'll turn my volume up here. Thank you, Kathy. Let's see if... Give me one second. I'll get through my announcements, then I'll do so. It won't. There's a setting I have to switch. Uh, Gaming and Education 2012 and the Alternate Education Conference are both uh, waiting for scheduled dates. Those are coming up, but we do have dates for the Future of Libraries virtual conference, October 3rd through 5, and the 2012 Global Education Conference, November 12 to 16. Uh, coming up on the Future of Education uh, next week, Kathy Davidson on her new book, Now You See It. David Warlick comes on on the 22nd. Alec Koros on social learning on the 27th. Uh, lots more fun there, including Howard Rheingold on his new book about to come out called NetSmart. Hopefully there's something there that's of interest to you, and we'll look forward to having you join us. If you've missed any of our shows, they're all recorded in full collaborate versions and in MP3 format, and they are available at futureofeducation.com. Uh, last week we had a really interesting panel on Seth Godin's new ebook, Stop Stealing Dreams. Before that, David Weinberger talked about his book, Too Big to Know, Dennis Litke on Big Picture Schools. Anyway. Lots there, hopefully something that's worthwhile for you. So this is when we give you a chance to indicate where you're participating from. To the left of the map now, you should see some icons. You're looking for the star icon. That's the second icon down. 
you double click on that and then click on the map. It's also fun to have you shout out the time and the temperature uh, where you're located. Well, fun to see you here. I'm sorry I wasn't paying attention, but it looks like India, Australia, lots of North America. Sure glad to have you here. And if you're listening to the recording, we thank you for taking the time. So, Mimi, um, really delightful to kind of get to know you through um, reading. Um, I, I, if it's okay with you, I would like to kind of go through your work um, through the history of the books. And um, it, um, I feel like you're in a very unique position at this period of time in history to tell the story. Do you kind of feel that way? Yeah, it definitely has been an interesting journey, um, certainly one that I couldn't have predicted when I started my graduate work. So am I right in the order here, is engineering play before hanging out, messing around, and geeking out, and then before fandom unbound? Yep, you have them in the right order. Okay, so um, engineering play just captivated me. I was just really fascinated. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the three areas or agendas that um, uh, children's software fell into and how they are reflective maybe of some larger views of technology and education? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm so impressed that you went all the way back to that book, uh, which was actually a book that came out of my dissertation work that I did, uh, you know, as part of the larger Fifth Dimension project uh, with, you know, guidance from folks like Ray McDermott and Mike Cole. But, yeah, my focus for that was really looking at, you know, that moment when we saw that big wave of edutainment CD-ROMs entering the market, and I was doing my research, really finishing up my research right when it was crashing as a market, but was really, you know, had been fairly embedded within, um, you know, um, the practice of certain kinds of families by that point and the whole idea that kids would engage with uh, software in early childhood was established in that era. So what I tried to do in the dissertation was to take the observations I was making of kids playing in the fifth dimension clubs and linking them up to the advertising and the sort of learning philosophies that the producers of the software uh, were developing and kind of contrasting these three strands, which I think are fairly resilient even as the technology has uh, changed uh, between, you know, models of learning that are probably uh, based on, you know, uh, more behaviorist versus constructivist models and um, kind of understanding how that gets embedded in the um, design of software as well as gets taken up in context of play in different ways. So you describe them as uh, learning, fun, and creativity, or academic entertainment and construction, uh, or enrichment, indulgence, and empowerment. Um, I was kind of intrigued by uh, what felt to me like a parallel with the constructivist or papered type of software, and the difficulty of that viewpoint becoming commercially successful. As, uh, and am I right in feeling as though that's kind of a theme that the more sort of sophisticated, thoughtful approach often uh, is competing with the commercial and, and remaining sort of secondary? 
has been challenging. Um, you know, I think within educational approaches to technology, there's uh, it's been easier to be sort of content-focused, and the content tends to, or I should say for software for kids in general, the content tends to bifurcate along an entertainment-oriented versus an education or academically-oriented genre. And you can see that in the packaging of the software and whether it's marketed to kids or parents. But then that third genre, which is about authoring tools and construction and constructivism and uh, those kinds of approaches have had a much more challenging time finding market niches because they don't fit the clear genre conventions that we have established in our culture. Um, at the same time, I do think that since I was doing the research for engineering play, that genre of um, making, building, tools for building where the content outcomes and the knowledge outcomes are more uncertain, that has really become much more prominent in our culture with the rise of digital authoring tools and um, online sharing platforms. And so I do think we're at a moment where we're seeing a broader recognition of the value of just hands-on learning and making for making sake, which maybe wasn't quite so prominent in the early years of uh, edutainment software. I felt like you were also sort of fairly forthright in the book that there was this there was this sort of division between home and school that very well served um, sort of the institutional um, providers, and that part of the story that we're seeing now is that this constructivist piece kind of exists beyond anybody's control, and that, that it is reshaping our sense of where, where learning takes place. I think that's right. The constructivist piece really challenges the neat boundaries we place between kids' play and learning, education and entertainment. And so it's one of these things that uh, you know, it's it's the genre that I've been most interested in because it does play that slightly disruptive role. Uh, but yeah, I do think that um, you know part of the challenges with my work, um, you know, when I've moved more into building programs and things like that, is that it is really the, those dominant genres and institutions have so much power because it's not just what people think, it's how they're institutionalized and how markets are divided up. And so, you know, when I talk to developers who are more in the construction genre, they said, well, we don't know if we should package it as, like, cute. Uh, parent-friendly, family-friendly genre or, you know, the genre of software that's much more entertainment-oriented and directly marketing to kids. And based on that, all of the pathways for how it's marketed and distributed and packaged change. And, um, you know, I think it's it really points to the fact that, you know, when we're just giving kids tools to make things, there's a lot of uncertainty and ambivalence about that because we're not quite sure where they're going to go with it. Yeah, I certainly felt an interplay in all of your work between control and agency with youth. Um, in, the, in, in engineering play, you talk about the software creators having a lack of understanding of the systemic process of institutional and cultural reform. I nearly fell out of my chair. I thought this was really a fascinating point. Um, and, and that oftentimes uh, innovative or experimental programs became victims of their own success, that they, um, they moved from that innovative sphere toward sort of existing social structures and norms. 
uh, without sort of diving too deeply here, did is that a part of the story we saw at DML as well at, at the conference? Uh, you know, that this sort of avant-garde group of sort of Web 2.0 uh, fans saw, saw their kind of uh, little playground getting encroached by big organizations? Well, I, I think that's definitely the challenge, and it's part of, you know, what... I think we've seen history repeat itself continuously where you see a small innovative group doing really awesome things that are potentially world-changing, but because a lot of the times when new kinds of innovations are funded um, and supported, they support the creation of a new technology or a new educational program, but they don't necessarily have a strategy for what happens when that goes out into the broader world. And so even with the early edutainment software developers, uh, you know, they had very progressive educational philosophies that kind of got crushed when the market descended on them um, in particular ways. And uh, I think it's that's why we, we hear continuously these narratives of, just uh, you know, oh, technology doesn't change anything. Look what look, look what's happened after every generation of new technology. And so, I think we have to keep those historical lessons in mind. At the same time, I do think we've learned from some of those past mistakes. So, I definitely see like what's happening right now in the conversation around educational technology and you know these new kind of platforms that are getting a lot of play or online learning, you know, big universities and big funders getting into the action, um, that we are at risk of it just um, that whole sort of weight of the incumbents kind of descending on our scrappy innovations. Um, but at the same time, I, I have to be hopeful about the fact that, you know, we are at a moment where we have new kinds of networks for connecting and collaborating and having more bottom-up, end-to-end connections between innovations. And I think that there's a fairly broad-based movement uh, towards certain um, progressive or, you know, what in my earlier book I was calling these more learner-centered and constructivist approaches, um, having... Uh, you know, a little bit more ammunition behind them uh, than than they did, you know, during the period, the CD-ROM era. I think that's where this is going to get fun, because when we finally get to Fandom Unbound, which is your book about uh, otaku culture. Am I saying that right, otaku? Yeah. Well, well, it really feels as though this technology is providing a kind of a unique moment where... Uh, this youth contribution culture has enough power to actually potentially redefine education the way we've been thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why, you know, in my own work, while I recognize, you know, the importance of understanding the big institutions and players and how organizational change works at that layer, my own studies have tended to focus on these edge players who are making a difference through these much more distributed and bottom-up kinds of practices. And so anime fandom or otaku culture has been such a great example of that because it's really about 
sans mobilizing in a networked and end-to-end -end way in ways that have completely transformed. It's a niche, but it's still an important niche within the media industry. So I think it's a great example of that and also the fact that it's about transnational connections. Um, is also something that has attracted me to that particular community. So let's move to hanging out, messing around, and geeking out, kids living and learning with, a new, in, with new media. So if part of the story here is kind of control versus agency, especially for youth, was one of the things that you discovered through that research that we don't need to be as worried as we are as parents? Yeah, it was definitely the message that sort of got taken up most broadly about our work was, uh, it was interesting because this book came out a few years ago, so it was right kind of on the heels of the shift to MySpace and that moment when teens really took ownership of social media. So now it's we're almost in a different era, but, you know, our work came out when it was sort of still at the height of the moral panic of, oh my God, kids are online and they're overconnected and they're oversharing and they're meeting strangers. And so um, I think it's really died down in the past few years, but what really got taken up about our work was that, you know, there are learning dimensions to what kids are doing online and it's not all bad. Um, so it, that was kind of the public message that came from our work. Uh, and I think now we're seeing that, uh, at least among, you know, certain sectors of society that, you know, there there isn't quite that same sense of fear and panic and the questions that parents and educators are asking about social media have definitely, uh, I think, gotten more sophisticated. I think that's true, but it, I feel like the document is still very current uh, and, and addresses what, you know, sort of are largely still the cultural concerns about social media and, and youth sort of independent activity. Uh, I think it's in Hanging Out, Messing Around, and Geeking Out, or it's in one of your books, but I actually made this in my own notes to talk to you about. I can remember when people would call our home when I was a child, and we always answered, hello, this is Steve Hargadon, or, or this is the Hargadon residence, um, whom, uh, you know, they would, they would ask for someone and I'd say, whom may I say is calling, right? So everybody in the family knew where the communication was. And that clearly is very different right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I do think that this, that moment when, you know, mobile phones and social media became, um, you know, just a standard part of our communication landscape, uh, was really that moment when, you know, the, the task of managing social relationships in the household and being able to monitor your kids' social relationships really shifted for parents. Um, so I do think that, you know, we're still living through the implications for that uh, in a lot of ways. And what I hope that our work would have provoked is sort of a shift away from that simple conversation of is it good or bad, you know, and that simple model of, you know, parenting as managing screen time in some absolute way to really asking, you know, uh, more uh, granular questions about, 
the differences in ways that kids can participate online. And so the question isn't connect or not connect, but really the genres through of participation that kids bring to the online world. And in that, it really parallels uh, the frame that I brought to the earlier engineering playbook in that, you know, it's not, you know, again, like I feel like a broken record, but it's not the technology or the platform that matters, but it's really the cultural genres and the social relationships that people bring to the technology that shapes its use. And so what we were trying to do with the, you know, those models of hanging out, messing around, and geeking out is saying, look, different kids participate differently in the online world. You have some, uh, what I would have said, are very sort of thoughtful, productive pieces of advice to parents and adults. Um, about not um, exercising control in a way that feels oppressive to the kids and finding activities to do with them that uh, really build on the positive aspects of the technology. And I appreciate that you are a broken record because I really like the, the thread of thought that goes through your work. But it also felt like that book in particular uh, wanted to address specifically how these changes in the technologies and in the activities were going to impact education. And what were your conclusions? Right. It, when we finished the Hangout book, we were still really, really early in our thinking about the implications for practice. I mean, we had sort of just popped our heads out after, you know, working on this very like large team over three years to synthesize, you know, what the, you know, it was really like, what the hell are kids doing online these days? And then trying to tease out the learning implications. I mean, I think since then we've gotten a little bit better and this I really credit to, you know, not the research team but the broader network of educators that I've, um, you know, um, had the good fortune to be in touch with. But in really understanding how some of what we learned in observing kids has um, ties, you know, ties into a lot of good uh, reflective educational practice that has looked at the fact that when young people have choices in their learning, when they're following their interests, uh, when they're engaging in activities uh, that are about shared purpose with adults rather than accountability, that the quality of the learning is different. And you know, that's where, um, you know, I wouldn't have predicted it when we went into the study that, you know, this research could have tied into, um, you know, the actual, you know, design and informing of educational programs and approaches, but it's really been fantastic to learn from, um, you know, colleagues who are working on the ground with young people and not just observing them, but, you know, trying to shape their learning in particular ways. And, yeah, I mean, I think the big findings were the fact that, you know, new media is a space of interest, autonomy, uh, production, and creativity for kids. And then the questions we had were really why, um, more young people weren't taking advantage of those, you know, all of those rich learning opportunities that are out there and the fact that, um, you know, we did see that with productive adult participation and guidance and co-production that uh, kids could have a lot of supports in finding those more productive learning opportunities. And the question that I really left the study with was how could we um, uh, support more environments that guided kids 
feelings towards those experiences. So it feels like there's kind of a dilemma, and that, which I think we're going to get to with the fandom book, which is that a, a lot of what is seen here is not new. Right? I mean, there have been uh, uh, Dewey-based schools, or like the big, like Dennis Lipke came on a couple of weeks ago with big picture schools, or Reggio Emilia. I mean, there, there have been people who have seen this value in student agency and um, sort of directing their own learning. And yet at the same time, uh, as we approach this from an institutional level, our, the, the dilemma is that we have a little bit of a desire to kind of control it. It starts out independent in, the, in this youth media world, and yet we look at it and think, okay, so how can we sort of manage this? So, so tell us about otaku culture. Right, right. Yeah, so otaku culture is, uh, you know, such a great example of, you know, pure production and non-commercial production and network culture and all those things that are sort of the buzzwords um, of today's online world. Uh, so, but what is interesting about it is, like you say, Steve, it's not anything new. I mean, otaku culture had its origins in uh, the 70s uh, and, well, even some of my colleagues trace it back to the media uh, post-World War II era in Japan where, you know, little boys got together and geeked out on their trains, you know, and we have one chapter by, um, you know, one of my co-editors who is a train otaku uh, from those early years, but it really is, you know, just a form of geek culture, and really my specialty is an anthropology of different kinds of geek culture, so it's been really fun for me to see, you know, the tremendous diversity in Japanese forms of geek culture, and then really tracing how, you know, there's these deep historical origins, but with the advent of digital technology, otaku culture kind of found its medium, so they were suddenly able to scale and expand transnationally in a way that really was not uh, was more place-based in an earlier era. So one of the reasons why Japan has been such a rich arena for these forms of cultural remix and otaku culture is because it's a very dense, um, like urbanly, highly connected environment. So geeks could get together and have uh, a lot of conventions and marketplaces for buying and selling and trading products and things that really relied on a peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure but was very place-based. But now that after the Internet came along, it just radically expanded and became this huge transnational phenomena. And so that's really what our book is trying to trace. Um, and, you know, from a learning perspective, I think... Um, you know, it embodies a lot of those features of the kind of construction-oriented and peer-based learning that we're, um, you know, many of us are trying to support through online platforms. But, yeah, I definitely take your point, Steve, that it's always a delicate balance between, you know, wanting these things to emerge and uh, self-organize and trying to bring in uh, players who are interested in directing them in particular ways. I know this has come up. I'm on a committee with Karen Cater on um, communities of practice, online communities of practice. And there is this tension between recognizing the value of what's happening independently and the inherent institutional bias toward making a difference by getting involved. Um, and in fact, it even comes up specifically, I think, in some very uh, connected ways with your work. Um, you know, they talk about bridging these networks. And sort of uniquely, the individuals 
are already the bridges. Could you give us some examples, for those who don't know what otaku culture is, uh, uh, sort of, of, of how it, what it is and how it has spread? Right, right. So um, I can give an example of, um, like, for my contribution to the book, I looked at two communities that were specifically transnational in nature, um, the re video remix community, which is mostly, uh, I think, uh, highly centered around the U.S., and also the fan subtitling community, which is also centered around the English language fandom. But uh, you know, the both of I mean the the fan setting community in particular is very interesting because basically what they do is they um, translate and subtitle anime and distribute the fan subtitled versions. And in the early years, before digital video and distribution, they did it through VHS and anime clubs where they would view together. But with the advent of digital subbing and online video distribution, the whole scene exploded and. The um, fan subtitled works were really what opened up the market for uh, anime overseas. I mean, prior to that, it had been a very limited market, and now, um, post-digisubbing, it's become sort of a major international niche uh, form of media. So it's really an example of people, young people, self-organizing to do this incredibly back-breaking work. I mean, translating, timing, and doing subtitles, it's not fun. I mean, a lot of people think of, you know, kids' online activity as purely play-oriented, but, you know, this, these are tightly organized work teams, and they get hundreds and thousands of downloads of their work. Um, so to me, it was really interesting example of me, uh, for how kids can work incredibly um, on incredibly challenging tasks, learn incredibly sophisticated technical literacies, pick up a language like Japanese, um, and how having a sense of shared purpose and contributions to a broader community and working collaboratively in mixed age groups, that these are incredible motivators for participation. So for a couple of years, I did a series of interviews uh, with people who had been seminal in the open source world. Um, uh, Eric Raymond, Richard Stallman, uh, Brian Bellendorf, Mark Andreessen. And I felt like I, I was talking to the canaries in the coal mine, the people who had sort of years ahead been on the front lines and were developing practices around, that, that were based on the new connectivity. I felt the same way reading your book, and I actually, uh, uh, reading the Fandom of Mom book, and I actually wondered, are, are we adults actually going to have any role at all here? I mean, are, are we likely to be surprised by kind of a, a, a group like this, kind of redefining learning independently in ways that we can't even imagine? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, in a way, it's already happened um, that, you know, you're seeing glimmers of this on the edges of our ecosystems where you're finding highly successful young people who have gotten the way where they have um, completely independent of the formal educational system. And so we're starting to see that happening. And, you know, for example, one of the, I mean, I interviewed, because I focus on geek uh, kids. I know a lot of kids who are these kind of poster children for alternative ways of learning. I think my big concern with it, though, and, you know, what's really been motivating the core of the collaboration I've been doing with the Broader Digital Media and Learning Initiative is the fact that 
the kids who are really taking to these online worlds and doing these incredibly activated kinds of things are, you know, they're a tiny minority, uh, you know, and again, it's just stressing the fact that different kids are engaging differently with the opportunities that the online world has to offer, and they tend to track along traditional lines of privilege, um, and so that's the big concern. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Bill Gibson's famous um, uh, quote of, you know, the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed, and I think that's where public institutions and interventions really have an incredibly important role to play because we are seeing sort of this equity gap in access to these uh, kinds of learning that I love to celebrate, but also recognize that they're not widely distributed yet. I, I've heard many times in your work a, a deep concern about equality, um, both from a social economic cultural perspective, but also from a gender perspective. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the issues with studying geek culture is that, you know, probably, I mean, you, of course, along traditional class ones, you're seeing a division, but, you know, gender is one of the most resilient ones as well, and I do think that if you're seeing, if we are entering an era, which I believe we are, where these forms of highly adaptive, self-directed, demand-driven forms of learning are becoming more important just because our technology and social and cultural ecosystem are changing so quickly then those of us who aren't necessarily, you know, predisposed or have the supports for that kind of learning or that more geeky kind of activated kinds of learning, you know, will continue to be at a disadvantage. And that's where, you know, I think we both have an opportunity to radically expand and diversify our imagination of the pathways that kids can go on to acquire um, access to these kinds of networks and knowledge and forms of expertise. Um, but we're really at a moment where there's a profound risk of a growing uh, divide and disconnect, I think. Can I ask you what your growing up was like? Um, are there ways in which your own childhood and schooling have informed your work? Well, it's kind of interesting. Like, our, my personal history on this is that, you know, I was... I have an older brother, and, you know, in our family, I was always what I call now a corporate learner. I did everything by the book. I did really well in school. I loved school. I loved, you know, extrinsic rewards and all of that kind of stuff. And my brother was this, um, you know, incredibly sort of geeky learner. I mean, he didn't, he did fine in school, but, you know, I think he... Um, by high school, he was missing a lot of school, and he had started his first internet business by the time, you know, in his teenage years, and he never finished college, although he tried a couple times. And so we were sort of like yin-yang from a learning perspective, and, you know, I think part of um, what uh, my work now is really trying to grapple with is my experience of growing up with an incredibly interest-driven learner and, you know, us both having an appreciation of uh, our different learning styles, but also understanding sort of the gaps and weaknesses of each side. I'm actually sorry I didn't try to get your brother on the show as well, but that might have been too complicating. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, again, I, I don't want to go to a place that may or may not be comfortable, but I'm curious as to your own parents' style. And was that, I mean, you're, you and your brother are obviously both well-known. 
do you think that your parents' learning style or parenting styles had something to do with that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, I mean, it was partially sort of growing up bicultural and kind of having to make our own identity and, um, you know, that we didn't have a lot of, um, you know, maybe my parents didn't know what they were doing, which was a good thing to a certain, um, in a certain sense, because they were immigrants and, you know, they just kind of, um, I, I think children of immigrants often have some sort of autonomy and agency that is unique to that position. Um, so that may be part of it. Um, but I do think that the fundamental thing, and this is something that's been borne out in, you know, the research that we've been doing on connected learners is that, uh, you know, that kind of social support and trust in the family and supporting kids' interests and their, um, you know, taking the lead from a, a child's interests and dispositions was really fundamental to how we were brought up and which is why, you know, even though my learning style was completely different from my brother's, we both uh, really thrived um, in the end. I've talked a lot lately about the need for a narrative, uh, a, a sort of a larger cultural narrative to help us facilitate these shifts. And I think maybe like you, it comes from my own personal experience. I was also a corporate learner, and in fact, um, we have four children, and our oldest, the first child of two first children, was very much a corporate learner. And we've had to really work on our family, in our own family, to redefine the narrative. As you kind of look at the larger landscape, are there narratives around teaching and learning that you feel are compelling enough to produce a broader shift, a broader change in thinking? Yeah, so I think that's part of why, you know, with um, we've been trying to develop, and it's still really early, but this model of connected learning that's come in part from research and in part from experiments and practice and just a long history of related work in the area, but in trying to bridge those boundaries and those ideologies of learning that kind of, you know, and which I grew up with as a researcher that was pitting sort of formal and informal learning or, you know, as if one, it was one or the other. And so, so our, currently, you know, what we're really struggling with is how to think of learning as something that should seek to integrate different spheres of learning in kids' lives. So the... Um, you know, sphere of school shouldn't really be considered hostile to kids' peer interactions or to their in creative interests. And, you know, what does it take to think about the fact that kids may have different entry points into what we consider connected and activated learning? So, you know, my entry point you know, we're seeing like this debate about badges and extrinsic rewards, for example. I mean, I really thrived on having clear structures, clear, you know, rewards that were recognized by institutions. And so my entry point into connected learning was really through these more institutionalized structures, whereas, you know, somebody like my brother was just, I, I thought, I always envied him because he always knew what he was interested in. He always had a passionate hobby, which, you know, I, I had to be handed them. I didn't have them you know, on, I didn't find them on my own like he did. Um, and so his entry point was through the interest space. And then there's other kids who like to do things that their friends are doing, you know, that they're very peer-oriented and friendship-oriented. And so I think if we can get to a point where it's like the learning we see 
you know, we can recognize when kids are really engaged and they're socially supported and they're doing well in sort of an adult-oriented trajectory. And these are all things that I think everybody recognizes as valuable learning and that we can say, oh, but kids may have different entry points and there's a diverse range of uh, institutions and pop cultural forms and genres and that can motivate kids to come to come to this space and um, you know I think I'm having the same thing with my two kids who are very very different learners um, but you know I it, it is interesting that you know confronting that within our own families and kids is a way I think of understanding that you know it's not one or the other. I had a really interesting thought. I was going to kind of avoid the bad conversation because I know you you blogged about really wanting to sort of look at the positive potentials. Um, but but I, I think sort of intriguingly, they do have inherently within them a, a sense of external or um, sort of external acceptance. Um, I, I have a son, we have a son who is an Eagle Scout, who got his Eagle Scout, you know, days before his 18th birthday. And it was so interesting to us that uh, we sent him down or asked him to go down to pick up his Eagle Scout award at the scout office, and they wouldn't give it to him, even though he was now 18 and an adult. And, and I'm still intrigued by the degree to which a badging system, maybe not intentionally, but may lead toward that kind of um, more extrinsic thought process. We'll leave that for the Q&A because <laughs> I don't want it to sound like we're being critical. Okay, so um, I wanted to give you a chance to describe both the Connected Learning uh, news site and also your research network. So I've put the news site up on the screen and um, feel free to tell me where to go and kind of how to show people things. We can do the same thing with the research site and then we'll go to Q&A. Okay. Yeah, so the ConnectedLearning.tv uh, site is really, I mean, we really took a, a page from your work, Steve, and how you've been doing such an amazing job and uh, connecting people around ideas and facilitating conversation. And so it was really an effort just to, you know, work with a diverse group of people and kind of surfacing an initial set of principles that we thought could motivate a set of conversations and inviting input. And we were working with Howard Rheingold, who um, has been fantastic in just advising us on how we might uh, build out conversation and community. And we oriented towards this model of having initially um, a set of live events that is just about facilitating conversation. And you know, I know that um, if you go to the What is Connected Learning section, and you'll see that, you know, we've developed a cute infographic and learning principles uh, that was really vetted and developed in a very distributed way with a network of people. Um, but it's really just, um, I hope, we hope it'll be seen as perpetual beta and we're just trying to invite conversation and eventually uh, we hope to curate resources and um, highlight what we think is a very broad, you know, and historically deep set of communities that have been working for a long time in related areas and we're just trying to provide some of the catalysts for surfacing all of this work uh, that people are doing that we feel relates to this model of learning and that's leveraging uh, new technology in order to make it more accessible. So that's the um, 
that's the connectedlearning.tv site. And then the, the research network is, you know, I consider just one component of this broader uh, frame of what we're calling connected learning. Uh, so this is in the model of, you know, what the MacArthur Foundation has historically funded uh, networks of researchers to come together to do work in an interdisciplinary way around a new and emerging paradigm. So what I think is interesting and exciting to me about our research network is we're bringing together people who, some of who have a lot of depth in the area that you would associate with education and technology or uh, progressive philosophies of learning, but a lot of people uh, who you know, are really coming together to talk for the first time. So we have, uh, you know, like Sonia Livingstone, who's really known for her work in media studies outside of school, or Juliet Shore, who studies, uh, do, does critical studies of consumer culture and uh, movements around sustainability. She's an economist. And, you know, Craig Watkins come from media studies, whereas Bill and I are tend to be learning people as with Chris Gutierrez. And so it's kind of a unique configuration of people to start, um, you know, a new research effort that is mining a lot of these strands of work and practice that have been going on. Um, on for a long time and to start doing empirical work to see uh, how much uh, these practices are disseminating or unequally distributed in the culture and looking in more detail at both the supports and barriers for these connected learning experiences to take hold for kids. Terrific. Okay, so this is the point of the show in which we uh, allow the audience to ask questions. Uh, audience, you can do this in one of two ways. You're no longer the audience when you ask a question. You can raise your hand, and that's the third icon over in the participant window. Look at the top of the participant window. You'll look for a hand, and you click on that. You can raise your hand, and we'll give you the microphone, and you can ask a question. Or you can put your question in the chat. If you've placed a question in the chat during the uh, previous 45 minutes, and I missed it. I apologize. It was hard for me. It's hard for me to keep track of those. So please just post it again. And uh, so if you have a question for Mimi, please feel free to, to do that. Uh, Mimi, what are you working on? Um, uh, uh, well, I'll ask a personal question. What are you reading right now that's really impacting you? That's a good question. I, um, it's funny. I'm reading parenting books right now. Um, I just picked up, uh, uh, I'm going to get the title wrong, but the Raising Baby, the French, uh, on French parenting. And I, of course, read the Tiger Mom book. And, uh, you know, I, I, I joke to my kids that I have my very own teenagers now, and it's so, I'm having so much fun. And, you know, what, I'm really trying to learn and reflect on right now is discourses of parenting. That's very funny. We could probably trade lots of titles. Okay, we have a quote from Lewis. How do you see this work affecting schools and libraries? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, maybe um, one that... Um, like, I'm not necessarily the, you know, I work with a lot of fantastic colleagues in schools and libraries, and so I can only speak from my experience of, you know, being able to connect with people who are more um, 
expert and immersed, but what's exciting, what's most exciting to me right now is the fact that, you know, I'm somebody who's done most of my research in the non-institutionalized learning space with kids hanging out and geeking out on stuff on their own and their social and recreational lives. And it's just incredibly exciting to me that I have partners now in the school and library space. And it's not that I haven't had companion spirits all along, but I think for some reason through the Digital Media and Learning Initiative and just the internet, it's become much more uh, like I've been able to find people and the work, you know, I think it's also a cultural shift where there's more recognition of the kind of learning that's happening in these informal contexts. So, um, you know, like the work that we're, we've been doing with the uh, U-Media Center in Chicago and um, kind of expanding this effort to a lot of museums and libraries around the country and building uh, centers where youth can connect with adults uh, within sort of adult-sanctioned space, spaces, but centered around the, their interests is tremendously exciting. And then the collaboration that um, Katie Salen is part of our research network, and it's been fantastic to work with her because she's been really trying to build uh, school programs that center around an inquiry and game-based curr curriculum that are, again, you know, meeting kids where they are in terms of their interests, but trying to bring those interests in conversation with the kinds of um, academic goals that are really necessary for them in their adult achievement. Okay, you have a question from Larry. What do you note are some cultural differences in learning from different countries, or are there any? Is the difference just the difference among types of groups, and what part does family play? Oh, wow. That's a really big, uh, really interesting question, but really challenging because there's so many um, answers to it. I mean, I think what's interesting looking across different countries, and you know, I've been fascinated with the work coming out of Finland and Singapore, for example, and of course I know a little bit about the Japan context through my own experience, but you know, the institutional configurations and the broadly shared cultural norms or scripts around education and parenting really do make a difference. And so, you know, the national frames, like right now, like uh, there's been a lot of talk about the difference between the American and Finland system and the the U.S. system stresses competition much more, is much more individualized, and that results in a di really different kind of institutional culture around education. So I think there's a lot there. Um, I think from, you know, so we're, we see differences both at a national level and also within countries. We, you know, there's a lot of work that's looked at, you know, class differences, um, the differences between immigrant families and, you know, families who have been in a country for longer. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's so much there, and I do think that it's incredibly in important to tease apart those differences and uh, both in how... Uh, there are different approaches to learning and education, but also how that's intersecting today with different ways in which technology uh, is taken up and regulated in the home. You know, we've talked on the show several times about Finland and, in particular, their ability to coalesce around a narrative of equity. And, and because we have this sort of competing interest narrative that's so deep in American culture, um, we've been looking for a narrative that would both be one that we already sort of believe, but would showcase a tension between that narrative and the traditional narrative of schooling. And, and one that sort of consistently come up is the inherent value of every individual. Uh, you know, the, the, your child 
has unique talents, and, and you should never be told your child is defective. Um, uh, any of those resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, in our work, we've really been trying to focus on the diversity of kids' interests, the diversity of motivations that kids bring to learning so that it isn't sort of an either-or. And I think the big challenge within the formal educational system is that we're often held to sort of standardized outcomes and focused on the outputs rather than the inputs to the system. And so when kids are held to outputs and those outputs are standardized and evaluated, you know, in relation to one another, so, you know, individual differences computed against a standardized scale, it's really difficult not to see that as a really strong message in terms of the value of their learning. Um, but then in the interest space, it's like, even when I was doing research on Pokemon, it's like, you could be a really good water Pokemon trainer, and there's a fire Pokemon trainer who's also an expert in your peer group. And you could have a lot of different trajectories for getting achievement and recognition. And when you look at really high-functioning interest groups, you often have a real diversity of roles, like you have the curator, the critic, the creator, the circulator, the evangelist, like all of these different roles in a community that isn't just about knowledge and skills-based expertise, but about really diverse forms of getting recognition uh, and making contributions. And so that's why I've always looked to these kinds of, you know, whether it's, in, you know, um, sports or creative pursuits or, um, you know, uh, intellectual interests that there is an opportunity to radically diversify the ways that kids' uh, interests and capacities get valued. And um, I think that, you know, I know you had mentioned um, the badging system, but, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, positive and negative ways that badging can be taken up. But one of the ways that I think is potentially a positive opportunity is just that it can diversify the recognition systems that kids have access to. I love that response. Okay, Donna Joy asks, have you done any research on any groups of inner-city children? Right. So um, we, my own research, so again, this is why I have colleagues, um, because we specialize just like interest-driven kids do. So my own research has definitely centered more on the highly technology-leveraged kind of geeky communities. Um, but in our current research network, you know, we I um, have really learned so much from uh, Craig Watkins, who's doing work right now um, in some uh, in a school in Austin, which I don't know that I would call it an inner-city school, but it's definitely not, um, you know, the, the population of kids that I tend to see in these sort of geeked-out online communities. And Chris Gutierrez, who, you know, has done a lot lot of work with uh, immigrant uh, kids and families, and so we're definitely diversifying the lens, the lenses and populations in which we're looking at our work, and then, um, you know, the, the sites that a lot of the um, new pro programs we're rolling out um, really do um, cater to a pretty diverse range of young people um, uh, in cities like Chicago and New York City. Okay, uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to keep plugging forward here. Averly wants to know, is there any way for us to volunteer to be part of the Connected Learning Research Network? Oh, 
Um, yeah, so this is something that we're just like, we put all this stuff out there and we've been getting a ton of interest and response and we're so happy and we're so bad at figuring out the right ways for kids, I mean, for people um, to participate and, um, you know, people, you know, again, I think it links to the earlier question of like serving kids in different locations and different programs and different sites of practice. and. Um, you know, we would love to just, like, the research network is really based on, um, you know, a new set of empirical studies that are both qua quantitative and qualitative in nature. And I think we will be seeking partners. You know, it, it really depends on, you know, this is this as a researcher or as a program. Uh, we will be seeking partners um, in kind of broadening the research and the reach and um, helping inform the future directions. Um, so. I think, um, you know, the quick answer is yes, definitely on the research side, most definitely on the community site, the connectedlearning.tv site, um, is we really welcome, you know, not just participation in the webinars, but also, you know, suggestions for resources, other projects, other researchers that should be featured on the site and ways of building out the site. We were hesitant to launch with a ton of infrastructure um, like wikis and uh, forums before we knew what the uptake would be, but we definitely um, want to be hearing from people and want more people to be um, connected to our work. Okay, uh, well, I think we have time for one more question. As a courtesy to our guests, and important because I know you have another commitment, we will end on time. Um, but Gordon says, Gordon says, I'm finding incredible energy in learning that has a base in building. My students are now building the very knowledge I'm supposed to be teaching them into living, breathing virtual worlds. Am I dealing with a minority? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I. I, or I would like to believe that it's a very broad-based kind of activator of learning for kids. And I think, you know, I'm one of the movements that gives me such hope is the whole growth of the maker movement and the fact that, you know, this it's not just like the, you know, the digital and online, but these place-based um, you know, programs that are dealing with building through physical materials and kind of linking that to the digital. And, um, you know, we're doing a case study. One of the communities that we're studying right now is Ravelry.com, which is a fiber arts community for knitting and crocheting. And it's just amazing to me how this sort of DIY make culture has been really taking off. And clearly it's predated all of the digital technologies, but I think there's a way in which the digital technologies both expand the range of things that kids can make and um, even more importantly, make them, uh, give them the ability to circulate and share and connect around those sorts of activities. So I see that as a huge uh, opportunity space. Mimi, the hour goes so fast. I'm hovering over the smiley face, which takes me down to an applause button, and I'm clapping for you. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> this has really been delightful. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yes. So you've been listening to Mimi Ito. And coming up next week, Kathy Davidson talks about her book, Now You See It. David Warlick comes on after that and lots more. Hope you'll join us again. We really appreciate uh, Mimi coming on today and you for attending. Thank you so much. Bye now.